the Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down, share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment. Welcome, everyone, to the Spiritual Brew Pub podcast. I'm your host, Michael Camp. Today, we have a very special guest, best-selling author, widely known speaker and commentator on American evangelicalism, Frank Schaefer. Frank, welcome to our podcast. Michael, lovely. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on. Um, uh, our listeners know that uh, I like to tee up my guests by sharing some uh, background on our journeys before we get started. And um, except for the part about uh, being really well known, which I am not, we actually do share a lot in common. Um, Frank survived a fundamentalist childhood and came out of evangelicalism, uh, having a noteworthy uh, ministry that we'll probably hear about. Uh, I survived a Baptist youth group and being an evangelical mis missionary before I deconstructed. Uh, your father, Frank um, Francis Schaefer, was one of my favorite theologians. I really respected him. Uh, he was definitely one of the more sane evangelical leaders, uh, at least being much more socially progressive back in the day. Um, we both have uh, Calvinist parents. <laughs> My father was a big fan of, of yours, but also a, a fan of a guy named R.C. Sproul. Um, uh, you helped start the evangelical pro-life movement. And uh, I dove into the deep end uh, when I got involved in an organization called Operation Rescue, <laughs> which I'm sure was influenced by you and your father. Uh, I went to your parents' spiritual retreat in Switzerland in 1984, but I unfortunately didn't meet you uh, at that time. You weren't there. Um, and then I started reading your books. And we're going to talk about your latest book here, but Crazy for God uh, was a great book, helped a lot of people, including myself. It's the story about, uh, you know, you're growing up in an evangelical family and how you how you left and took, took it all or almost all of it back. And... Um, it really helped me in a difficult time, and uh, I know it helped a lot of others. There's another couple books that I really um, uh, uh, enjoyed, Patience with God, Faith for People Who Don't Like Religion or Atheism. Uh, there's Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God. And frankly, one of my favorites is the, is the Portofino uh, series. <laughs> and for, if you don't know that, uh, it's a humorous fiction series about a boy named Calvin Becker on vacation with his conservative evangelical parents in Italy. Wonder who that's about. Uh, it was a really hilarious uh, series. I really enjoyed that. Um, 
And then finally, uh, we met years ago at the Wild Goose Festival, uh, and you were very kind to endorse my first book, Confessions of a Bible Thumper. Uh, but today, we're, we're, we're just going to talk a little bit about that background and really get into your new book, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy. Great title. Um, I'm uh, uh, rambling too much. So let's start asking you some questions, Frank. Um, what was it like uh, growing up in that, that household of yours and then eventually getting involved in the American pro-life movement? And, and where are you today spiritually? Well, you know, there's a lot of stuff packed into those couple of questions you put together there. So I'll try to unpack them for you. And if I ramble on and forget one aspect, you can remind me. I don't mind. Um, first of all, there was no growing up in that household in the sense that um, different parts of my childhood and teenage years were really spent in different aspects of my parents' ministry. Uh, let me explain. When I was a child, let's say from birth to age 12, my mom and dad, Francis and Anita Schaefer, were running a very obscure, very small, very underfunded, very little ministry that no one had ever heard of at that point called Labrie Fellowship. Labrie means the shelter in French. So early childhood, where was I living? In a house where most of the food was casseroles and salad and bread from the wonderful local Swiss bakery, because this ministry was in Switzerland, where my parents had gone to begin some mission work after World War II. Um, and my childhood, therefore, was very similar to missionary kids, wherever you might find them in Reformed Calvinist households. Uh, loving parents, three older sisters, everybody folded into the work. I grew up thinking that somehow we were responsible for saving the world. What impression are we making on the visitors who come, the people we're ministering to? It's a very standard issue, missionary child background, except we are in the Swiss Alps. Uh, we have the beautiful luxury of living in an incredible space. We're not in Africa. We're not in Thailand. We are in a luxurious country that caters to very wealthy people. So, you know, our idea of a day off was to go down to a local tea room or take a lovely hike in the mountains. So that's childhood. Um, in the middle of all that, I was sent to a British boarding school because I'd been homeschooled. It wasn't working very well. People who read my memoir that you uh, alluded to so kindly a moment ago, Crazy for God, will know about this. We also took vacations in Italy from Switzerland on my parents' very low budget, low rent kind of budget. In those days, it was a cheap vacation, train, second or third class to Italy, five, six hour trip, and you'd be at this little pensione on the coast in places that later became very famous as resorts like Portofino, the town in, in Liguria there in, northern, in uh, the northern part of the Mediterranean. So that's, that's young childhood. Then in the middle years, dad started to write books, uh, Escape from Reason, The God Who Is There, things that became evangelical classics at worldwide, translated into 40, 50 languages, quite literally millions of readers. And all of a sudden, everybody knew who he was and traffic through Labrie was no longer just students coming up from the local university or visitors backpacking across Europe, but a flood of American evangelical leaders, people like Billy Graham stopped by and many others, you know, too numerous to name, but we knew everybody at that point because they wanted to know how is Francis Schaeffer doing this, this being reaching the, the hippies 
and the beat generation before that, answering their questions, interested in art and culture, drawing the kind of people into Labrie that never ventured into evangelical ministries. So that's, that's the middle. And then the third part is dad being talked by me and Billy Zioli of Gospel Films and then Dr. C. Everett Koop into making a couple film series. One, how should we then live uh, on art and culture, taking his ideas about philosophy forward. The second one, whatever happened to the human race, looking at the abortion issue and the life issues, so-called. And that really became the formation of the backbone of the evangelical wing of the anti-abortion movement. And what most folks don't realize is that when we took that second series out, which I directed and produced and was responsible for, our big problem was talking evangelical leaders into getting behind it. Reverend Billy Graham was pro-choice. He did not believe in that abortion should be illegal. Dr. Criswell, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, the, the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, the pastor of First Baptist in Dallas, talk about a bastion of conservatism, was pro-choice, actually had Bible studies showing that uh, abortion was okay from the point of view of babies being ensouled and quickening and uh, you know, verses in the Old Testament about a miscarriage is not a capital offense and all those sorts of stuff. So most folks don't realize that the big fight at that point was to get evangelicals to sign on at all until Jerry Falwell did because it was time to switch gears from being a segregationist and, um, and, and find a new way to raise funds and be politically involved that was acceptable to a larger group of people. And then all sorts of people jumped in. Paul Weirich, the the ultra conservative Roman Catholic activists began to organize evangelicals in reaction to Jimmy Carter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the rest is sort of history. And then you fast forward a little bit. My dad dies in 1984. By that point, I'm his nepotistic sidekick, well known in that movement myself as a young upcoming leader. Uh, you know, kind of if you forward to our present era, could have been the, the sort of Ralph Reed type of person or the Franklin mm -hmm. Graham leading evangelicals as this fiery young guy who's started out as a sidekick to an elder who's now gone. But I chose a different path. I became really angry and sad at the fact that I'd become entangled in something that was self-evidently ugly and kind of mean-spirited. And so, you know, my life changed in addition to which it was terrible for my life and my marriage. Um, you know, the way I put it in, in, in my book, uh, this new one that we're going to talk about in a minute, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, was that I was kind of groomed to be a, a, a jerk by divine right in the sense that, you know, the, the evangelical idea for male dominance of females and wives who are supposed to obey their husbands, you know, wasn't flying in my household and, of course, was catering to all my worst instincts anyway. So, one thing led to another, and of course, I've talked about this in the in the in this new book as well. So we won't go into it too much here in this thumbnail sketch. But um, I got out and I left, and and that's been a long time ago. And you mentioned Portofino and the books that go with it, Saving Grandma and Zermatt. That trilogy really was my kind of farewell. It was a, uh -huh. a, a, a with three novels that were works of humor but at the expense of the kind of fundamentalist narrow view I was raised in, and they did well enough both critically and commercially to give me permission to keep writing. And that's whatever, 15 books ago now. And the rest has been a mixture of fiction and nonfiction. And that's what I do. So, you know, to come up to the present book that I've written, it really comes out of 
an experience of having changed my own views on some of the things I'm advocating in the book, for instance, equality between uh, men and women and non-binary people and others and egalitarian society. These are, these are not the things I was raised to believe and I've come kind of a new place. So I don't know if that's the answer you were looking for, but- Well, no, that's great. Um, yeah. I mean, there's just, like you said, it's a long story. It was a loaded question. Yeah. I mean, huge, but um, uh, you know, your, your family uh, chose a, an easy mission field, us African missionaries would say. That's right. That's <laughs> exactly right. I mean, tea, tea rooms and good restaurants. Well, we had tea rooms, but they were called tea shops and they were very tiny and and in little huts, but- yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that, that's it's fascinating that, that people should read Crazy for God because it's all in there. It's just amazing. Um, you mentioned Billy Graham. I, I, I want to bring that up just a little bit. Um, I, I kind of followed him for many years, and I first got to know him at a giant youth uh, Jesus festival in the 1970s. But, you know, Billy, like you said, he, he wasn't really jumping into the political uh, pro-life movement. He had a lot of things that he changed over the years his view mm. of the bible uh, he kind of started to become almost a universalist and he was very inclusive um but i, I always described him uh, as a, an honorable man trapped in a dishonorable religion yeah um, i mean how does that resonate with you and your experiences with people in your in your circles well you know i knew billy and and i can remember talking with him on different occasions and you know as the kind of sidekick to my father but he was an honorable man. And the fact of the matter is Billy and Ruth Graham were wonderful people. Ruth was one of my mother's best friends. We knew them very well. But the, the, the fact is in Franklin Graham, his son, it sort of went the other way. You know, yeah. I left the evangelical movement. He became an evangelical leader in, in the shadow of his father's memory and then uh, went far to the right. So I remember Billy talking about the fact that he had really gotten burned by being too political in the Nixon years and right. endorsing Nixon and his anti-communist crusade and so on. And he really had a crisis of conscience at that point and decided, you know, tried to rethink where he was at. Am I an evangelist trying to reach people for Christ or am I this political operative on the, in the Republican party? He opted to go back to evangelism. And of course, then uh, his son Franklin's gone in the opposite direction, but I, I have the same view of Billy that you do, and I think anybody that knew him felt that way. And uh, you know, when the direction Franklin's taken their ministry and since Billy Graham's death was exactly the opposite direction of Billy's life. Got to remember, he f was fighting for desegregated crusades in 1954. That's early, uh, and 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 would never do a segregated crusade again after that. And when he after his time with Nixon, he went totally in the other direction and wanted to depoliticize his ministry. So whatever one thinks of what Billy was preaching or the theology and so forth and so on, in terms of his own integrity, I don't think that's, that's uh, you know, needs to be questioned. And he himself as a human being was a very kind, decent, right. decent yeah, person. Was. And, and I saw him evolve theologically where Franklin, I don't think has really, <laughs> I never even clued in to the yes. things his father had evolved in, I, yeah. which is baffling to me. But anyway. Yeah, and also, uh, to be honest with Franklin, he has falsified that background because he had, when Billy was old and, and doddering and a bit senile, you know, he carted Donald Trump down there and had them sitting together oh, with really? Billy taking pictures. And, you oh. know, when, when Ruth died, she wanted to be buried in, in the family graveyard up in Montreat. And he 
did, went against her wishes and had her buried in the mausoleum they built in the Billy Graham Center so that he could have a kind of a fundraising base with his father buried next to her. You know, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, Franklin's a real snake and he has really betrayed his, his uh, parents' legacy in, in so many different ways to the, to the point where his mom even hired a couple lawyers as the Washington Post reported and had them draw up um, legal papers um, to safeguard the fact she did not want to be buried at the Billy Graham Center. And mm -hmm. he actually went against her wishes. So, you know, when you when you look at the Billy Graham story, the sort of opposite inverse story of mine of coming out from that, um, you know, he made the choice not only to go into it, but essentially put Trump in the White House, because without Franklin's endorsement and Ralph Reed's, um, Trump isn't president. And yeah, never would have true. never would have been elected. Yeah. So so you know the the ultimate destiny of the of the Graham name is going to be linked forever, not with Billy's crusades, but with the fact that his son put Trump in the White House, which is a very very different legacy to the one that Billy Senior yeah, left. Very behind. sad legacy yeah. too. So okay, well let's pivot a little bit. Um, what what inspired you to write this this newest book? I know you, it's a little bit different. Yeah, the other books are. Uh, a lot of on theology and deconstructing and yeah and and philosophy etc cetera, etc cetera. this one's quite different what, what what inspired you to write this book well you know my journey has been kind of a long one as you know uh coming out and going through all these twists and turns and one one thing is is that um you know i'm a father of three grown children a grandfather of five grandkids and about 13 years ago when my granddaughter lucy was born uh she was born when living <laughs> with her parents in our house after they got married, John and Becky uh, moved in with us. I started doing some childcare for her. I really I enjoyed uh, working with them as young parents and helping her. I thought this would be sort of a passing thing. I'd help out a little bit. They'd move out and they did and they moved across the street. But by that time I was absolutely hooked in a kind of a reparenting program of mm -hmm doing it right. I mean, this time I wasn't on the road six months of the year doing either evangelical work or the B-movie business I got into or being doing author tours. I had some more time. Cut a long story short, for the, for the last 13 years, I have been doing full-time childcare. Uh, when I say full-time, now they're all in school. Nora, who's the youngest, is in school, but full-time in the sense that I wasn't just helping around a little bit or my wife was doing most of it and I was doing some of it. My daily routine was that of a sort of a super nanny, stay-at-home grand, granddad. In the middle of that, I also was still writing, but I cut way back on my speaking. Um, this is pre-COVID, so I, I was turning gigs down in favor of the fact that I could do something unique for these children um, against which everything else began to just pale in terms of enjoyment, but also just in terms of contribution. And so as a writer, I started to keep some notes and a kind of a diary of childcare, you know, full-time oh, grandfatherhood. Okay. <laughs> uh, some of that is still in this book, but then what happened was, is I started sending some of this to some friends of mine who um, were interested in what I was writing about childcare because they were having kids. These were people, mostly parents at a, at a younger time of childhood for, the, for their kids. Um, and I was writing about my grandkids, some of them were scientists who work in neurobiology and evolutionary psychology. And they were telling me, you know, you have really got something here um, because what you're really doing is unpacking the latest 
developments in neurobiology and evolutionary psychology, right, which is the, right. these days all about the survival of the friendliest rather than the survival of the fittest. Mm -hmm. And so they were, I got my dog here. They no, were, um, if you hear him <laughs> barking there, okay. they were, um, they were very uh, pleased with the book because they thought that it represented something that they were working on in their own fields. And so I was very lucky to have some sciencey friends who started pointing me in the direction of doing some further reading that about what I might call love being an actual thing. So the research that I started doing sort of introduced a second element. There was the, the stories about taking care of my grandchildren, the sort of memoir biographical material similar to the uh, continuation, I guess you could say, of what I'd been writing in books like Crazy for God. But then there was this other path. Now, since it wasn't my academic field at all, and I'm a layperson coming to this, what was going to be a year and a half or two year writing project turned into a six and a half year writing project. Mm -hmm. And that then became the second thread. So there's childcare, there is the, the, the neurobiology and the evolutionary psychology, really the scientific basis for love that makes the world go round. Mm -hmm. And then a, a third element came in, and that is the COVID pandemic. And when that happened, I realized that what I was calling for in the book, which is basically to redefine what we mean by success, is it all about your job title, the amount of money you earn, your career, your position, or is it about the interdependency we have with other human beings? essentially the associations through love and caregiving that give life real meaning. Um, and, and maybe it can be both at times, but we've clearly in Western culture chosen to follow the career description of success, not the human relationship description. And this is not working well for people. So when the pandemic hit, it was almost as if there was some sort of weird divine memo sent saying, hey, go try what Frank's writing about in this book. Now I'm not being flippant. I've had people die of COVID in my in my close circle, but um, it was odd because what I call for in the book is a reevaluation of our commitment to career as the kind of first line of what we think of when yeah. we identify ourselves. So COVID offered this crazy opportunity to, to almost be a vast, you know, multicultural social experiment. And what happens if we all stay home for a year and think about the fact that there's more to life than simply going to work? Um, and our job description. So that was the third element. And, and basically that's what the book comes out of. So fall in love is not just about romantic love. It's falling in love with the idea of love being important itself in our lives as the, right. as the prime directive of evolution, not Jesus, mm -hmm. not God, not the 10 commandments, not the beatitudes. Evolution directs us towards love. Neurobiology is very, very clear. Oxytocin is real. The reason we don't kill all our children when they're born is because we love them. And so we have this huge defense against how hard it is to being parent, waking up at three in the morning, feeding babies all night long. You know, we would kill them all, except for the fact that biology and, and evolution has given us this incredible gift of this experience of meaning and love when having kids, have children. Again, yes, it includes biological children, including my own. But it's not only that. I mean, like tonight, you know, we're talking here in this podcast together. Uh, right now, you're you're having the role of a caregiver of me because you have taken the time to allow me to talk about the book and show what I have here, like a parent would with a child. So, caregiving relationships of having children are not limited to biological kids, although obviously it's part. Stay put. 
why are we moving all over the place all the time to chase more money, more jobs, more career opportunities, when actually what we long for is rooted stability in our lives, which implies community, neighbors who we know, family that we stay near, save the planet as a kind of a result of the fall in love, have children stay put in a reordering of priorities. And then of course, be happy, maybe the wrong words, maybe it's fine joy, but um, this is a result. So that's the book. And, and it, it, it's sort of bizarre that it's come out in the post pandemic or the, the not, we're not through the pandemic, but in the, in, the, in the post part of the pandemic of the first wave, because when you look at things like the great resignation, people leaving their jobs, when you look at people reevaluating, like my son John has saying, you know, he won't come into the office more than one day a week and they can find somebody else if they want him to. They've kept him on, he's working from home. People are now making some of the things they discovered during the heights of the pandemic permanent right. in their lives. Right. So in, in a sense, what I advocate in the book is kind of experimentally happening, uh, not because of my book, but because people actually respond to closer connection uh, in, in a contemplative way that makes them question whether they were really happy or not on the on the on the 100% career path, or whether there's more to life than that. So that's kind of the context, and of course, it's still a spiritual context because in the end, we're talking about meaning here, and giving our lives a structure that enhances that meaning rather than diminishing it. But that said, it's my most sciencey book, and I have people like Myrna Paris Sheldon who teaches science at a university level, and others who became part of a team who were helping me um, not embarrass myself by reading the right things and then correcting the manuscript. And, and, and so actually where the book talks about science, I hope I do it in a, in a way as a writer that makes it explicable and pleasant and fun to read. But I also think that there's actually, the book has some real chops. It isn't just me talking about uh, the good stories with my grandchildren, it is backed up by a real argument um, that I think holds water saying, look, you know, even if all you wanna do is be selfish, stop concentrating on making money and career and start concentrating on the people around you because the final mirror that you can trust when you look at yourself is not the size of your paycheck or the, or the you know, your job title. It is what you see written in the eyes of the people who you love and who love you. Do you see joy and happiness contentment there? Or do you see fear? Do you see, um, do you see unconditional love when you, when you are near the people who you're closest to? Or do you see something else? And, you know, it's about, it's high time somebody, for instance, talked about this, because the only religion the U.S. has now, both whether it's evangelicals or secular folks or all points in between, is really a dedication to the bottom line, to profit. And, and obviously, you know, statistics on loneliness and suicide and all these other things point to the, the, the glaring fact that this is not working out so well. Yeah, well, I mean, there's so many observations to make about what you've said in the book's <clears throat> theme. It's really uh, uh, very well um, articulated. And we really need a, a book like this. Um, I mean, I think about, uh, <clears throat> you know, the evangelical movement, um, their focus, uh, you know, is definitely on money, but also on just doctrine and, and, and just, you know, getting it right doctrinally, you know, and biblically and all this stuff. And what you're really saying is, wait a minute, folks, what, what matters most? Hmm. And, and this doctrine doesn't matter most. 
being biblical doesn't matter most. They're, they're, you know, biblical depends on what book of the Bible you're reading and <laughs> yeah. how you attribute it to be fact or not. And uh, money is not what matters most. And so that I really like that, just getting down to, uh, you know, how should we live? And which happened to be a title of one of your father's books, but yeah, you're, you're taking a little bit of a different tack there. And um, you bring up this survival of the friendliest. And just coincidentally, I just started reading this other book called Humankind, a hopeful history. Mm. It's, guy, it's by a guy named Rutger Bregman. And it's talking about everything you were just saying as far as the science goes, you know, they're saying, hey, you know what, we have evidence now that humans thrive best and are evolved to be cooperative and kind. Right. <laughs> it's not really survival of the fittest, like, you know, the traditional evolutionary view. It's it's the friendliest because by cooperation, we can get farther ahead if we're always you know, fighting and, and having conflict and trying to be fitter than the other, we don't get ahead. So um, tell us a little bit about more about that as far as the science goes, you know, the survival. Yeah, well, the you know, so, so let me back up again, because it's part of a, a different question. It, it, it's a great question because it opens up a couple of things. You know, the way I was raised was basically that morality and goodness and virtue and all of these things come to us through God's revelation. And if it wasn't for Jesus's teaching or the Ten Commandments or whatever, we would be completely lost. We would be not oh, only right. pagans we're, and unsaved, but yeah, we we're, de we're depraved sense. people. We're depraved people. Yeah, we'd all people. be murdering right. people. We'd be right. raping people. Right. There'd be no order. There'd be no right. good parenting. Everything right. would go to hell on a handcart. And of course, mm -hmm. it's so ridiculous when you look at the scope of evolution and realize how young all religions are. What you, what you realize when you study a lot of the new material on this cooperative basis of human life, okay, this cooperative basis, is that the only reason we are here is because before there was religion, evolution had a very strict moral code that it taught us. And it didn't teach us in Sunday school, it taught us through survival. If you didn't cooperate, your tribe died, simple. Right. If you didn't pick up the child left by the trail and take her back to the village and raise her, she wasn't gonna make it and nor were you because then your ethic was one where you just took care of yourself and never other people and you would not be able to coexist with other with other hunter gatherers you would not be able to exist within your tribe who feeds the mother while she feeds the baby nature screams cooperation i even have passages in my book about a wonderful study that was done of trees by one of the world's leading scientists in that area who also is a forester talking about the fact that all the new studies of trees show that forests grow up together, the root systems feed each other, they even care for each other when they're sick. You know, um, you heard my dog a minute ago, Zip, okay? So, you know, if Zip comes into my house, or rather I come into the house after a trip away and Zip's hungry and I put food in his dish, but he hasn't seen me for a few hours, he will come and get the attention and the affection first, then go huh. eat. Even though his, yeah. and that, and that of course is, is usual because dogs are social creatures and we co-evolved with them for the last 35 to 53,000 years, according to the, the studies on it. So what's interesting is anywhere we look around, we saw, we see that, that nature herself, evolution herself. And if you're a theist and you believe that's God directed, okay, fine. But nevertheless, it's sure nothing to do with the 10 commandments and the beatitudes long before any of that happens, before there's writing or anything else, people are cooperating or we're all dead. None of us are here. 
somewhere in your ancestry, somebody got picked up and taken care of, or you're not here, Michael, and I'm not either. Um, that's, that is the, that's the fact. So the first point to say is that from a, a former evangelical background, the best that can be said of religion and government and all these human institutions is that they were an attempt by early civilizations, which are very late in the evolutionary process, by the way. So there's no ancient human history at all, because we've just came here an eye blink ago uh, in terms of the planet. Um, but in, in, the, in the course of human evolution, at a certain point, people, tribes, groups of people began to try to codify or codify, however you want to pronounce it, what worked. And one thing that worked was not raping, not pillaging, not everybody taking anything they wanted, cooperation, watching over your neighbor's property, feeding everybody even when they couldn't feed themselves, who feeds the mother while she feeds the baby. Otherwise, none of us are here. So when Jesus comes along and starts saying some very obvious good things, good things, great things to live by, or other religious leaders or seers or prophets. The reason that religions are formed around these ideas is not because these are new ideas, it's because the codifying or the codifying of a system that already was self-evidently working um, resonated brilliantly with people. They were saying, great, that, that expresses exactly what we need to hear. They're open to that, not because it's a new idea, they're open to that because it's the oldest idea in the book. And it's the only reason anything within nature survives is cooperation. It isn't just human beings, it's all inner, it, and it's the planet itself, in addition to which it's the way we relate to the, the closest creature we have in the mammalian world that evolved with us, which is dogs and, and the codependency we have. By the way, to the point where these days we even share, dogs are the one, uh, creature in the mammalian species that share some of our cancers and nobody knows why. They don't mm. catch it from us, but we evolve so closely with them. So anyway, first thing to say about the book is when you look at the, the evolution of the human species, there is no way to read it without understanding that what we evolved to be primarily is caregivers. And I'll tell you just one experiment that Ruth Feldman performed that I talk about in the book. She, 25 years ago, actually more like 28 years now, Ruth was someone who was doing the first scientific experiments, really trying to unpack mother love, mother bonding with infant. So she would get breastfeeding mothers or people playing with toddlers, very close relationships, and do a series of brain scans, blood pressure, and then above all, hormonal tests of saliva and blood, looking at the oxytocin levels, looking at the brain activity, mapping all this incredible rush of feeling that a mother has who is bonding with a child. As a control group, she started doing the same tests on fathers and then beyond that adoptive parents, gay fathers of kids, as well as straight fathers from the heterosexual community, thinking that this control shoot group would show how unique the mother bond was and that males had a different sort of bond, but it wasn't gonna be the same. What do you know when the real science was brought to bear gay adoptive fathers of kids that they did not have any biological or genetic connection to had exactly the same levels of oh, oxytocin and yeah. all the other hormones. In other words, the male of the species, as well as the female, the non-parental biological parent and the adoptive parent share something. And that is evolution screams you are a caregiver you can start bonding with a child that you adopt or that becomes a stepchild or whatever. And if 
she said the one caveat was it had to be parents who were spending time with the child. In other words, a mother spending a lot of time with the baby is going to have a different reaction than an adoptive father who's going to work every morning and never right. sees the kid. Right. Yeah. But if the bonding process is there during the time they're playing together, here's the mind blower. That adoptive gay father is having exactly the same hormonal chemical explosion in his brain or her brain, a lesbian adoptive mother, non-genetically related to the child as the blood relative. Mm -hmm. And this was new and, and depends on modern science that simply wasn't available before. So lo and behold, who are we most fundamentally? We are caregivers. We are quite literally, in Jesus's words, we evolved to be our brother's keeper, literally. So that all the things that resonates about the teaching of Jesus, which are wonderful things, by the way, I'm not in any way downplaying that, they resonate precisely because they literally, and Christian listeners will like this, but not in the sense they mean it, they literally happen to be true. They don't happen to be true because he's the son of God, that's another point. They happen to be true because they reflect a, a distillation of the actual wisdom involved in interpersonal human relationships that lead to survival. And so evolution, if you want to put it weirdly, is on the side of the words of Jesus. Now, you could make a whole nice theological theistic or deistic point about that, and you could spin that out into creationism or whatever you want. That's a different discussion. But for the purposes of this discussion in my book, the cart and horse are very clear. You know, the horse is evolution, everything else is the cart. And evolution teaches us exactly the same thing that the Sermon on the Mount did, but it's not a, a religious teaching, it is a survival manual. And yeah. it, is not, it is not about the great and the good, raping the earth and taking everything. It is not about dominating others, it is about cooperating. So whether it's an individual relationship like Jeannie and me, who have been together now 52 years and have a good relationship because I finally learned to be something different than the jerk I was raised to be in terms of relationships with women, or whether it's an entire society that operates on the basis of some sort of level playing field of human rights. This is not some modern invention or ethical or religious invention. This is the prime directive of evolution. And, and the be happy part of my book is telling people, look, I am not calling you to some great moral crusade or to be a good father because Jesus wants you to be, or you'll go to heaven, or it's a nice thing to do. I am telling you, if you want to find joy in life, you have to get in tune with a style of living which actually matches what you evolved to be, or every day you're going to get up will be like putting your head down and trying to run through a brick wall, because you are not a businessman or businesswoman. You are not an entrepreneur. You are a caregiver. And if you can get that part of your life straight, then you can do that other stuff in support of that caregiving. You don't have to be a parent. You don't have to be married. You don't have to have physical children. But if you're not in love with love, if you don't have children in the sense of being a caregiver to those around you, you won't be getting the care either. And if you're always moving around looking for a better deal, you're never going to be able to save the planet because you're consuming it. And, and so it's not an ethical call to a higher calling. It's the opposite. It's what I would basically call altruistic selfishness because through altruism and caring for others is actually where we find joy. And well, the, this yeah. is borne out by studies. Right. So, I mean, um, lot, lots to unpack. You know, the way I look at it is um, the, the, we're, we're inherently cooperative, we're built to be kind, we're built to love one another, care for one another. 
Jesus said it, evolution, science is saying that's the way it is. Whatever you think about God or theism or atheism, this is the way we are, right? Yes, so you could, exactly. there, there is a Christian way of looking at it, but the yeah. my, distinction that I make, and this, is, this goes back to uh, uh, how we got to a point in our society, in our, in, our, in our world where humankind became not cooperative, but started to become violent and started conflicts. The distinction is, in my mind, is that on the, um, on the let's say, the society uh, side of things, when we became um, much more um, sedentary, instead of being hunter-gatherers, we're, we're building cities and we, we need, uh, we need uh, uh, people in power to control things. Uh, that's where we went down this path and started, you know, getting much more violent as a, as 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 a as a race of people. And on the religious side, you know, you could take Jesus's teachings, but as soon as you start to canonize them and and mm. make them into an institution that we call church, and you've got you have to adhere to this statement of faith. That's when you get you go off the love path, and you're just you just you just create conflicts. And, well, and yeah, and, and it's because of what I was talking about before, and that is you have taken the the codification, the codification of something that is a truism, and you've turned it itself into a weapon with which to browbeat people and have power over yeah, them. Right, right. Where and then the only reason that any of this made sense to begin with is precisely because it is not the survival of the fittest, but the survival of the friendliest. And so if you codify that and now become unfriendly as a means of, of, of pressing your point, you've, you've, you've kind of undone everything that you could right. be. And, you know, the thing that, look, I'm an optimist about the human race in the sense that this prime directive cannot be easily sloughed off. I mean, let's change the, turn the page here a little bit. Look at the reaction that we have in the so-called great resignation and the renegotiation of business deals, the people demanding higher pay and more benefits, uh, you know, parental leave suddenly on the table seriously in the US for the first time in decades. All this stuff comes out of the fact that if people are given even a moment to draw a deep breath in a different context, like say being kept at home during a COVID lockdown, when they come back into the world, so to speak, um, they've learned something. And that is for a minute, they were allowed to just take a breath and not be in the rat race, charging ahead the whole time, trying to make something of their career. It was like a moment to think about things. And when you look at the polls, for instance, that have been published in the New York Times of men who stayed home to work, who then found themselves in more caregiving roles, sharing the caregiving with women more, a lot of those guys now say, well, we got to find some way to keep it this way. They are not all anxious to run back to Goldman right, Sachs right. and get into that big glass tower again and never see their family. They're saying the hell with that. I, I, you know, my daughter works in New York City and she's a CEO of a small venture capital company that works in green energy. And she was saying, look, you know, until COVID came along, all these guys I was working with, like a bank president I talked to all the time, would almost, you know, they'd never even admit they had families. And then all of a sudden, this same guy, three months later, sitting there on a Zoom call saying, shh. I got to talk in a whisper on this meeting because I just put my toddler <laughs> down for a nap. She says, I never even knew he had a kid. Yeah, in other words, right. his, li his life as a human being was absolutely hermetically sealed. Right. So it's a total reversal. Everything this guy presumably cared most about 
could not be brought into the life that he lived in public as if somehow he had hidden them away at home, you know, uh, and, and so on. And she was saying it was such a relief to have people having to be human. Like all of a sudden dogs are barking and kids run through the frame of a Zoom meeting. And it's like, hey, that, this is real life. And she said it was liberating for a lot of women who are trying to make it in business who have found themselves over the decades having to pretend they don't have families either or they don't get taken seriously. So a lot of veils fell off people's faces as it were. And as, as COVID hit and we all got sent home and now the aftermath, put it this way, at the very least we can say a lot of people are rethinking some things that have been assumed to be cast in, in concrete for decades, for centuries maybe. Um, and of course, that's what Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy is about, in that I've actually written a book saying, look, the reason why you're given pause when you're sent home and you think, do I really want to live the rest of my life as a career is only important, is not because you've made some new discovery. All you've done is reconnect with who you are because you didn't evolve yeah, to be right. this guy. You didn't evolve to be this guy sitting in a cubicle in a glass right. office trying to make money. Right, you evolved right, as right. someone who wants to have enough to eat and care for yourself and your family, but you didn't evolve to have bottomless greed and ambition. You came out of a hunter-gatherer environment in which sharing was the only reason you survived. And when you had enough, then everybody had enough. You have a completely different background than you would think looking at shareholder statements and profit and loss of Goldman Sachs and so forth. This is not the world where human beings really function well. So let's just get down to earth a little bit as far as you know, your average person, uh, yeah, during COVID, we've learned some lessons, but how do you, how do, how do people balance work and family? And, you know, we still have to make a living. Uh, young people's people, single people have, don't have a family yet. They're, they're like, want to build a career. They, you know, I've got, uh, some of my kids are just starting off in their career and they're struggling and other my older kids are kind of more established and they're getting their feel for it. But how do you balance work and family? And, and what are some of the ideas that come out in your book on that? Well, the, the book is incredibly practical. You know, the last third of the book included some, some you know, bullet points and uh, of things that need to be done both legislatively, but also just personally to make relationships work in the context of career. I get very practical. Um, it, it's certainly not all theory whatsoever, but just to, to touch a few of those points, the first thing is to realize there's nothing wrong with a job and a career. We need to earn a living. The question is, what are your priorities? And let's just take having kids. When is the right time to have a child? There's never a right time to have a child. It's always going to cost money. It's always difficult. You never quite have enough. Nobody's got their life in balance to do this. So what, do, what is it like? Well, it's like falling in love. It isn't the right time. It's when it happens. And you roll with it or you don't. The problem is with our culture, we don't give people real choices. We, we don't have support for single moms. If, if, a, if, if a young woman becomes pregnant and she's in college and brings that baby with her to school, there's no provision for that child. And yet the same people who make no provision say that they're interested in the family. You can't have it both ways. You can't have a culture that doesn't make provision. So first of all, what my book is calling for is practical application of the idea that, look, if you guys want to call yourself pro-family, pro-child, pro-woman, let's start acting like it. Let's give people real choices. Mm -hmm. Then the second is a personal side that says, look, this is not a perfect world. We're not going to be able to 
to legislatively change everything overnight, although things may be moving in the right direction with the Biden administration. Certainly, let's hope we get more of that and, and less of the kind of laissez-faire libertarian Trump thing, uh, whatever that was. But that, that being said, it's not going to go fast enough. So what do we do personally? It isn't a question of saying, you know, um, I'm going to have everything or nothing. It's a question of reordering our priorities so that at least we are open to looking at what we do do in life through a different lens. All right. A job is a job. It can be a career. You can have a vocation. It can be a wonderful thing. But if you're sacrificing the human side of your life for it, it's not an either or situation. Sometimes it's earn a little less money, have a little less prestige, but mm -hmm. live a little more of a humane existence. Have mm -hmm. that child a little sooner than is really convenient. You're never going to find you're in the right place. Just step out and do it. Um, you know, be entrepreneurial in your human relationships as well as in business. Don't just think that the whole entrepreneurial sacrifice, build, wait, defer pleasure for, uh, you know, building a career. Some of that can apply to building relationships as well. You know, we're so weird now in terms of telling kids to go do great, big, fancy, important things before they do anything else that, you know, you have trends, for instance, in college where people aren't even dating. They're hooking up. They're having sex sometimes but they're not dating in a traditional sense. They don't have an expectation of a romantic in, uh, involvement. It doesn't mean nobody's falling in love, but that's being suppressed in, in a lot of ways in our culture. The same comes to childbearing. You know, it's as if there are no fertility clocks. Well, lo and behold, we have a trillion dollar a year fertility industry that is making money off a whole group of people, both male and female, who have essentially been told, put your career first, put your career first. And suddenly they're 47 years old and now they want this child. Then they have the child. Who are they taking care of? They're taking care of a 91-year-old mother because they've waited till they're 50 to have a child and they don't have a grandparent across the street. I'm 70 now. They don't yeah. have a 70-year-old grandparent in relatively good health who can help. The whole thing's out of balance. Yeah, that's so, so the first thing you can do is say, look, I can't fix the world. I can vote for the right people. I can vote for Joe Biden and not the next Republican who's going to take away what little we've got. That said, I can also make some choices to have that child when it's not convenient, to fall in love when other people are telling me you're too young, to go and to, to maybe have that kid before you get the master's degree that's gonna put you into another level and then do what my daughter did, have them in school age, come back, complete her education, succeed wildly well in her, in her <laughs> career endeavor, but, but reorder some priorities. So it, I think one thing young people have to understand practically is this, we all have a long longevity now compared to say our great, great grandparents. There is no reason we've got to pack everything to do with career in first when biologically speaking, you cannot reorder the universe. Fertility clocks are real. And so are hormonal attraction clocks. And so are places where we can meet people and not be reduced to online dating when we're 40 still looking for somebody. So we are out of whack with who we are as human beings. So we can look at areas of our own life if what, how, whatever those circumstances are and just say, look, at least I'm going to reorder my priorities so that when an opportunity comes along to fall in love, to commit or not to commit, to decide to remain childless, but be a caregiver in another way, whatever that decision is, because my book is not telling everybody to be like me. I talk about not only gay people and non-binary, but a whole range of possibilities. Mm -hmm. Within that range though, we can all have the same priority. And that is the relationships we have, have with other people matter most. And if we order our lives according to that principle, 
we're not going to have a perfect life, but we can do a hell of a lot better than by drinking the Kool-Aid offered by corporate America. That's what I'm talking about. And right, we can right. do it in practical, personal ways. Fall in love, you know, have children, stay put. Fall in love with love itself. Maybe that's a gay relationship. Maybe it's a, a, a relationship where you decide not to have a child. Doesn't matter. The point is your priorities cannot revolve around the making and getting of money and then wind up thinking that's going to make you happy because it doesn't. All the studies show that anybody who's looked at this in any serious way in terms of the, the, the loneliness statistics we see coming out, suicide statistics, elderly people with nobody caring for them, the separation of the generations into these ridiculous situations where people are in retirement communities, you're not even allowed to live in if you're under 55, you know, feeling cut off from everybody. Um, we've, we've built a ridiculous culture. It's just stupid. So it, it, it isn't a question of evil. It's just, this is just silly and it's not working. And it's not working because we've tossed out the things that make us happy. We've thrown away the candy. We've eaten the wrapper again and again and again. And now we're getting sick. I mean, physically and oh, mentally right. ill on this shit. So the book is very practical. The last third of the book is very practical. Actually, at least all through the book is practical stuff. Um, it's not just a theoretical kind of proposition. I like the... Uh... But reorganizing priorities and, and really stepping back and taking gauging, you know, you know, what what is what what are your goals in life and 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 realizing I mean, you have to reject a lot of the messages that come out of society. I mean, in order to do this, you have to reject the message. Oh, I have to keep up with the Joneses. I've got to have the you know the good job the, the better career the earn them or earn more money etc but well or as a parent have stupid ambitions for your kid yeah so somebody right. wants to well, go to a trade school and be a really good carpenter you got a right. problem with that yeah. i mean why why do why you well, know we we have also been coerced by the university system that tells oh, you absolutely that yeah. they are the gatekeeper to this big fancy career I so have. now go get your degree in media something bullshit You're, right. it's not going to go anywhere you know, why, why not find something to do that actually earns you a good living and keeps you happy and gives you some time with your right. family? That's all I'm saying. Yeah, we, we definitely learned that lesson. I mean, um, yeah, you, you don't have to go to a four-year school or go to get a master's degree. Um, anyways, I wanted to ask about, I, I think one of the things that comes out in the book is you have the t part of the title is Save the Planet. And, and I would put in that is like, it's it's making the world a better place, and so that it's also to me it's also helping the poor. It's helping people who are marginalized and need that need to be lifted up, and and let's cooperate and be kind to them, and, and let's equalize things, and and let's save the planet. Let's let's do something to fight climate change and mm. etc. Um, so what do you say? What do you say about that in the book? What, what well, are some practical ways that we can do that as individuals? Yeah, yeah I agree with you completely on what you've just said. And that say, saving the planet also includes, you know, humanizing culture and helping and caring and giving is, is part of it. I, I would just say that if you look at what is destroying the planet in terms of our ecosystems, it is not the interpersonal relationships that are that are destroying it. It is the it is the greed and the profit motive and the consumerism. So, you know, me sitting reading to Nora tonight, Nora's my seven-year-old granddaughter who I pick up at school every day, cook for and care for uh, until she goes home at around six. Me sitting reading to her out of 
Alice in Wonderland and through the looking glass while she eats the snack that I have cooked for her and we are talking. At that moment, I'm reading a, a book that was printed probably in 1900, talk about recycling things. It's one my mom gave me. Um, she's eating some berries that I got down at the local farmer's market. We are not consuming the planet, but when I'm doing big fancy things and jumping on a jet airplane to go lecture at Princeton and feeling all puffed up and my books are there and I'm gallivanting around the globe with a huge carbon footprint, I am consuming the planet. So look, I need to do some speaking in big fancy places or I can't pay the bills. That said, if you look at who's consuming the planet on, in a, on, on some beach, it isn't the mother sitting there breastfeeding her child and the toddler playing at her feet and a loving spouse or partner sitting next to her with a picnic basket. It's the, you know, it's the six jerks on a jet ski zooming back and forth, uh, you know, consuming all kinds of energy resources for no reason, tearing up the ocean, flying over the back of some manatee sitting there who's just trying to feed and graze and, and ripping up his skin. When you look at the consumption culture we've got, it, that is the problem. And so if you are concentrating on those around you, less is more. I don't need a whole bunch of shit to keep Nora happy. I need a book and a swing set and some grass to run on. And we're good because mm -hmm. we have a relationship. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. it doesn't cost me a dime to hug and kiss her a hundred times after I pick her up from school and tell her I love her. That's mm -hmm. all free. I'm not trashing my planet doing that. Her presence on this planet is not consuming it. What's consuming it is the is is our culture's idea of all the crap that some young parent is told they've got to buy in order to be a young good parent. They don't need all that shit. Uh, they need a much smaller place to live. They need a lot less stuff. So I think when it comes to saving the planet, my book does not have some vast ecological plan for global warming. What it does though is, is mirror a lifestyle which comes very naturally when you change your priorities. Because when you change your priorities, you know your aim is no longer to, to accrue a billion dollars and build your own space fleet. It's to, it's to really be a good grandfather right. to Nora. Yeah. And, and, and so the, 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 what changes in the structure of planetary destruction and interpersonal relationship is the same thing about caring. Uh, because when it comes to say commitment to your local community, I've never been as committed to my local community as I am when I'm doing school pickups of my grandchildren at the local public school. I mean, now you have my attention. You tell me to be involved in my local community because it's the right thing to do. Well, maybe, but I'm busy. You tell me to be involved because it'll lower my taxes. Well, it's just money. You tell me that to be involved because it's good for Nora, I'm there. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. And and so even the motivation of the part you were talking about of caring for the needy. Hey, if there's some mom in my public school and I see her and she can't clothe her children and that's in the context of my own grandchildren where they go, now you're on my street, you're on my page. Right, it's local, right. And it means something and I will do something about it. And, and the same with, uh, you know, things the school needs and the teachers pay and all this other stuff. So I just have to say that when we concentrate on those around us, again, they become the focus of something that actually connects us to other people better than if we just do it in theory. And when it comes to consumption, that's what's destroying our planet. It's container ships full of shit that we didn't need anyway. Nobody right. needs another <laughs> flat screen. Nobody needs another screen anything. 
for a long, long time. Right, right. Um, no, it's true. You know, your, yeah. your iPhone 7 is fine. You don't need the 10 or the 13. I know. It's amazing. It's amazing how they just, you know, they set you up to get the next upgrade and the next big bright and shiny thing. It's over yeah. and over and over again. Yeah. So this has been a great conversation. We're almost we're almost to the end of our hour. But um, one of the last things I wanted, one, one thing I want to bring up is, is that, um, you know, we're talking about saving the planet, working on what matters most in family, et cetera. And for me, and for so many people who have, let's say, come out of church, right, where, where do they go? And, and for me, I found a, a home and the Rotary organization, they have Rotary clubs all over the country, all over the world. I work with people all over the world in this organization. And they're doing stuff to save the planet. They're doing stuff to eradicate polio. They're doing stuff to, to um, you know, help the poor and, and empower the poor. And, and it's amazing. It, and, and when you focus on what matters most, uh, instead of all this, you know, either making money or, you know, getting the right doctrine so you can go to heaven, it's, it, it just, you, you just uh, step out into a whole new paradigm and, and, and it just blows your mind. So with all the kind of things that you're talking about, you know, people will start as they try to do one, one or two things or three things step by step, it'll, it'll start a new paradigm in their life yeah. and, and they'll see the difference. And, yeah. and it really yeah. is. So yeah. one, one I, last, and, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I just want to say one, one last question is, um, you know, kind of going back to your evangelical roots, just wanted to get your feel for what are your thoughts on the latest Supreme Court decision about, um, you know, allows Texas to eradicate sure. federal rights like abortion. Well, um, you know, we're- And, it's, and so it, I'm really curious about your evolution on the abortion Sure, issue, I mean, the whole thing is, a, you know, it's a disaster because this, the, our family had something to do with getting this whole thing going. So, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to sort of do a fake confession and say it was all our fault because that's a kind of self-aggrandizement. But I got, I've got to say that without my dad's activities and my activities where I was pushing him as a young ambitious guy who wanted to have all this exposure and clout within the evangelical world, the kind of greed motivated, greed and power motivated, um, we'd be in less of a mess than we are now. We really, we really screwed up. And one of the areas we screwed up is thinly veiled misogyny pitched as family values. Well, they were fake mm. family values. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons I wrote this book is to set the record straight. These are what I've written here, to the best of my knowledge, are real family values backed yeah. up by science. We right. were pitching fake family values, and guess what they were? They were nothing more than thinly veiled misogyny. And we came from a theological tradition that wanted women to go back in the box and be in their place. We were anti-woman. We were anti-feminist. We didn't come right out and say it sometimes. We danced all around it, but the fact of the matter is, Sierra Coop and my dad and I, and the er, the pro-life movement are the real motivation was basically women belong at home, and they are the primary caregiver, while we men do big fancy things and make the money, and above all, they listen to us and do what we say. We are in control of them. It isn't even a question of do they control their own bodies. They don't control their own personhood because they are an adjunct of a male-dominated patriarchal universe. And that is where we were coming from. And it was not honestly expressed. And so in that sense, we were lying. 
because we were out there pitching a pro-life scenario and what it really was was anti-woman. And I have come to see that so clearly and I'm so mortified by that and have done everything I can in this book to write the record. And one of the things that I talk about in the book in terms of abortion is that when you look at the issue itself, I know exactly where I'm at. I quote my dear friend Myrna Perez in here. She has a, a, an essay she's written for a book coming out in Oxford University Press soon called The Theology of Abortion. And what she's saying is very honest. She says, yes, you know, there's horrible, ugly side to this. It goes into eugenic possibilities and Chinese forced abortions and all the rest. But when we get here to the American situation, she poses a very straightforward question. She says, you have to trust somebody on this issue and knowing full well that that somebody, whoever they are, is going to make terrible mistakes sometimes because the humans are fallible. But who are you going to trust? A male-dominated hierarchy, a male-dominated medical profession, or individual women? And she mm -hmm. says, there is no better solution than trusting the individual. And I totally agree with her. And that in no way makes it a simple, easy thing. But that is a real answer to this idea that somehow we men should tell women what to do and that this has to have a political control. And the other thing I would just say is what's really on abortion itself, what's really been born into me just through life experience of being a father, a grandfather, you know, a husband of, of Jeannie for the last 52 years and so forth is that evolution and or creation, however you want to state it, genuinely is unfair to mammalian female species in the human race. You know, we do not, there is nothing that males don't choose to do since the draft was abolished, if I can put it that way, that puts you in the da danger of life and limb and health for the rest of your existence or terminates you like childbearing. And the idea having watched my wife go through 36 hours of labor with her third child and have a, being cut and sewn and a, and a forceps delivery. And she almost died. Oh my gosh. Three years later, almost bled to death hemorrhaging and had to have a hysterectomy. They, you know, women, women have yeah. an absolute right to say, screw this. I do not want to go through this. I have five kids. I have no kids. I have a deformed fetus. You can't make me. And they will not be made to do this. And I am totally with them on that. And so my, mm -hmm. my position is radically pro-choice in that I don't think it is the place for men to discuss the ethics of abortion when men face nothing comparable. This isn't some minor little inconvenience. You know, this ridiculous thing that Amy Coney Barrett, who is this shill for a conservative, mm -hmm. off-the-wall Federalist Society Roman Catholicism, twisted into a form of judicial fiat, saying that, well, you know, they can just bear the, the child and, and leave it at a fire station and have it adopted. Bullshit. Mm -hmm. You know, the, it, it is a betrayal of, of women and their rights to have, to express things like that. Women, do, women cannot be forced to do these things and should not be. And, I, and I'd go a step further and just say, look, I think one of the only evolutionary paths we have that makes sense right now is to listen to women on a whole range of issues. We need female leadership. We need the empathy. We need the communitarian impulse of women who are, who are protectors of, of lives and the next generation. This is something women bring to the table that males do not share in quantities that this, in the same way, even though we all have evolved to be caregivers. And so I've come out right the other side. And I think anything that empowers women is point blank good. Anything that takes away from women's ability to flourish is bad. 
-hmm. And when it comes to abortion, that it's utterly ridiculous uh, to get into an ethical wrangling between, you know, males over what is clearly something that there is no equivalent. There's no moral equivalent and there's nothing in nature that we face that is remotely the same as this. Right. It is, it, and, and, and because, the, because that is the case, you know, if anybody has an ounce of compassion and empathy, the idea that we would argue against an individual woman's choice and make her carry the product of a rape or incest the way the Texas law would, because she doesn't even know she's pregnant at six weeks, right. make her carry that child a term with no exception, just take that. You know, if that isn't the most goddamn brutal, horrible thing you can imagine, I can't imagine anything worse. So, you know, I, I, I'm irate with my young self. It's like, Frankie Schaefer, what the hell were you thinking? <laughs> right. Who the right. F did you well, think it's, you were? Yeah, it's the, it's the all or nothing way of thinking that I hate evangelicals it. and fundamentalists are taught to do. I mean, that's and they're what brutal. I was taught to it's, do. It's brutality. Right. And so and when like, you theorize on there's this no stuff, gray it's areas, like, it's just like crazy. And and the other thing yeah. that bugs me is is the consistency or the inconsistency of of, oh, it's, you know, anti abortion is murder and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, we're not really helping women and poor the poor and we're not really being consistent. And why are we for capital punishment? And why are we, yeah, but, you know, you but know, I'd go further and I just say, look, you know, we, we in America grudgingly admit that our great national sin is racism. And of course yes. it is, mm -hmm. and I'm yeah. not minimizing it. Black lives right. matter all the way. All right. Right. But we do minimize what I'm about to say. Now we have another great national sin in this country. And in a way it's even deeper because it's a double whammy for black women. And that is that we our greatest national sin is the endemic sexism in this culture. Mm -hmm. We are awful yeah. and always had been. And of course, when you combine it with racism and you look at the way black women yeah. are treated yeah. and you look at infant mortality rates and you look at that at the actuarial tables on, on the difference between the way women are treated who are black and the quality of medicine they get and white women, it's absolutely iniquitous. And so we, we, you know, we talk about the racial sin and slavery, but the fact that women have been looking at, at kind of procreation vessels has always been a form of slavery. And it's been right there, right in front of our faces the whole time. And now is the time to really push back and just say, we're, you know, we're mad as hell and we're not gonna take it anymore. And, and that's, that is really, I think the only moral attitude when it comes to religious bigotry enforcing on women, a kind of a biological determinism, which is just simply horrible and um, should not exist in a free society. So if we're not fighting for women, we're not fighting for anything as far as I'm concerned. Oh, that makes sense to me. Um, yeah, definitely. Well, this has been a great conversation, Frank. Uh, we're kind of, we're running out of time. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Spiritual Brew Pub. Um, Michael, where can thank people you. Go to, yeah, yeah, where thank can you. people go to get your book? They can go wherever books are sold, as they say, which means Amazon and anywhere else. If that they're you interested know, in, in you and your journey and your website or something. If they want to come to me, it's just frankschafer.com. I'm on Facebook. Please, please come there. I have a podcast called In Conversation with Frank Schaefer that appears cool. everywhere podcasts appear. If you want to get in touch with me, feel free. It's uh, easy to do. It's just frankaschafer at AOL.com. My name with the middle initial A. Uh, I have a Gmail account too, but the AOL one's the one I read. Put on the subject line, 
that you heard me talking to Michael and you will get an answer from me. Oh, there you go. Put in Michael in a subject line. and we... <laughs> Yeah, just say, heard Michael you on Kemp. Michael Kemp, heard you with Michael Kemp and you'll get an answer. There we go. I like it. Okay. Well, Frank, thank you so much and uh, good luck with your new book. And folks on the Spiritual Brew Pub, we'll see you next time. Enjoy responsibly. The Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down Share your true thoughts about your journey and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment.